Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract. Today, Jennifer, but call him Jennifer. All right, let's do a bio, and then we're going to get in some really good uh, conversation about this, your new book, in her own voice. Jennifer McCollum, CEO of Linkage, a Sherm company where she oversees the strategic direction and global operations of this global leadership development firm with a mission to change the face of leadership. Linkage has dedicated more than 35 years to advance women and accelerate inclusion in leaders and organizations. Linkage has been consistently ranked a top 20 training company worldwide, providing assessments, training, coaching, consulting, and conferences. Jennifer, you, an acclaimed speaker, consultant, coach, and author, of course, with two decades of experience leading and building businesses in the leadership space. That's why we like each other. Her expertise includes how to close the gap to gender equity, why the most effective leaders are inclusive leaders, and how to demystify inclusion for leaders and organizations. Jennifer's delivered workshops, keynotes, webinars, podcasts, to trillions, I would say, of leaders globally on live and virtual stages. Prior to Lincoln, she spent 10 years in Atlanta working for the Coca-Cola company, also spent a decade growing businesses with Corn Ferry and corporate executive board, CEB, now Gardner, of course. At CEB, she led product management within the leadership division, driving innovative solutions that helped organizations select, develop, and place leaders at all levels. Previously, she also served as CEO of Intravision, a leadership consultancy she founded and grew over the course of eight years. This new book, again today, we're going to talk about In Her Voice, A Woman's Rise to CEO. It launched November the 14th, and we're going to get into this deeply today, Jennifer. Thank you for being here, okay? First question. Thank First you, question. I didn't expect you to do the whole long bio, by the way. <laughs> Gotta do it. Gotta do it. Because it's impressive and I want to honor you appropriately, Jennifer. Now, I know we're friends, but this book to me uh, spoke in so many different ways. I always thought of myself it, when I was leading teams and organizations is going in and saying, okay, if we don't have at least 50-50 split with gender uh, equity and equality here on the leadership team, then I'm an idiot uh, leader or VP or chief, what have you. And one of the things that you get at right away in the book are external biases and hurdles. And so I wanted to sort of start there. What's historically, and also kind of as we're thinking about now today's world, um, what's getting in the way from the biases and the hurdles for the advancement of women? Well, I, I'm really actually happy you started with external bias because this has gone on for generations. Bias is very well studied and understood. It's very difficult to change. The focus of our work at Linkage isn't really about changing the external biases. Those will change over time. The focus is really twofold. One, helping organizations more deeply understand what are the levers that they can pull to help solve what I call the gender equity crisis. Mm. Women are the largest underrepresented population, but they only represent, uh, because they only represent 30% of the senior leadership roles, even though they're about 50%, as you said, 50% on the way in, 30% on the way up, and 10% at the very top, at least in Fortune 500. So we, yeah. we work with organizations to help them understand what do you need to do in terms of the culture, the equity and the talent systems, the executive commitment, the action the executives take, the role models that they are, 
and then very specifically leadership development for women. Now, the other thing we do, which is equally, if not more important, is to support the women themselves in overcoming what we call the internal hurdles. Mm. What can they do to more deeply understand and scale the hurdles that women uniquely face? So you write in the book, um, which is a poignant, poignant line I wanted to dig into a little bit deeper. You, you write, seeing women, especially women of color, leading from the front, whether in politics or business, can be uncomfortable for many, especially those who are currently in positions of power. And so uh, there are about four different things going on in that line. And I want to work backwards. So power first. So some of the things you've alluded to, right? The 50, the 30, the 10% uh, quagmire that is relevant and prescient, uh, prevalent, sorry, in our organization today in terms of composition of women at these uh, levels, I, I think has a lot to do with power, a lot of power of men unwilling to be open and inclusive and intuitively understanding that diversity actually uh, allows greater creativity, productivity, da, 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 da. So tell me a bit about power first, and we'll work back from the rest of that sentence. I think I'd like to frame it in the context of an important story. And the story is toward the end of the book, and it's Dr. Tanya Matthews, who's a, who's a friend and advisor of mine. She's the African-American woman. She's actually the CEO of the African-American Museum that opened in earlier, I think, in 2023 in Charleston. And we were lamenting. I was com commiserating with her around the data. And you, as you said, you can cut the data any which way, financial metrics, operational metrics, employment metrics, with diversity at all levels of leadership, but especially at the top all the way to the board, any way you cut it, results are better. Mm. So I was saying to Tanya, Dr. Tanya, I'll call her, why is it that really smart executives at the top know this data, we've seen it, but change isn't happening? Mm -hmm. This will get to your power question. And she said, and I, and I quote, girl, if it were all about the numbers, we would have solved this problem a long time ago. <laughs> she said the forces for change have to be stronger than the forces for the status quo. And that status quo, as you allude to, is that power structure that has been in place for generations, for centuries, forever. And so we need to move away from talking about this from the head and moving into the heart where the leadership majority, and you know, we might as well call it what it is, it's at the kind of at the VP, SVP, executive C-suite level, it is men at 70% or so, 72 actually, and primarily white men. So we need to, it's, it's more than just appealing to men who have daughters. It's about helping men see what is in it for them, what is in it for their teams, their organizations. And that mostly takes experience. Mm -hmm. One of the best things we do at Linkage is work on executive sponsorship. So while we're working with the women to develop them and any other underrepresented population, best case scenario, we're working with the executives simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And that creates some magic that is sustainable. So another uh, powerful word in that power statement and line that you've got there is uncomfortable and uncomfortable for many. So in your research and your work and your consulting and all the good stuff that you are doing at Linkage and just you and your career, 
what is it that makes it so uncomfortable? I mean, we're they're just human beings, women. They have equal rights. They have equal brains. They get smarter and 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 more empathic. Often, I'm. I just. I can't figure out why it's so uncomfortable for men, if not many white men, to be in situations where they can elevate and integrate and to um, have this concern that we should be doing something about it, the problem. Yeah, so this is, um, ooh, that's a big one. First of all, <laughs> women don't have equal rights in all countries. So let's just put that out there for a moment. Good point. But, uh, and I say that because just this morning, I I was on, I was delivering a keynote address to a very large Fortune 500 company alongside the CEO and his executive team. And one of the things he said, I won't name the company, was we all need to be a lot more comfortable being uncomfortable. And he was talking about how he created more gender equity um, on his board. But it the reason to answer your question is, and this is for all of us, right? I, I it's it's just it's the similarity bias is that we are more comfortable engaging, supporting, developing, partying, and you know, just being with people who look like us. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of experiences to realize that when you bring diversity into your life, it could be defined in any way, diversity of perspective, diversity of race, gender, ethnicity, age, race, sexuality. It, it, it takes more effort because we don't have that experience because we spend most of our lives surrounding ourselves with people who look like us. By the way, I'm no exception. You know, I've had to come to my own reckoning 18 months into my CEO-ship at Linkage I looked around and realized we were 70% white women. That was Mm. a really big problem. And so we ourselves had to come together as a leadership team and say, wait a minute, we need to diversify our own organization and ensure that everybody feels included. Well, you're just a a gorgeous learner as well. Like you keep pushing your own boundaries and and being self-reflective because you're a leader who's demonstrating and waxing lyrical about how important it is to be self-reflecting and to make those changes. So good on you, which actually lines up to uh, a question I wanted to get to you with about the inner critic. So you suggest that the inner critic uh, of us women uh, is always present and that it's um, kind of simply a part of who women are. So tell me a little bit more about and expand upon the inner critic and what you mean by that and what basically women need to do about that issue. The inner critic is is what we call this uber hurdle. It, and the reason is because it weaves its way through all the other hurdles to women's advancement and, and it mm. can amplify them. So the inner critic, just to get the definition out of the way, is that voice inside our heads. All of us have them, have an inner critic, by the way, the entire spectrum of gender. For women, it's louder. And for women, it can prevent us from taking action. It can prevent us from achieving our aspirations, our our dreams. I'll give you a personal story in a moment. But that inner critic is that relentless voice in our head. It is judgmental. It's critical, Mm -hmm. typically for younger women, I mean, at any age, but typically as you move up the ranks, it tends to be critical of ourselves. As we get more and more senior, it tends to be more critical of others. But it sounds like this. I'm not good enough. I shouldn't ask for that raise, that promotion, um, that bonus. I'm not ready. So that voice can haunt us. 
and it can cloud our vision from what from what we can actually achieve. And so my example I, I use a lot, although I can give you stories and there are stories in the book of the inner critic at every stage of my career, even though it's still present and the inner critic is impossible to completely to com completely silence, we work at Linkage on how do we actually quiet the inner critic. So my, do you want my example or do you want the solution? Let's go example then to solution, yes. Perfect. So I, I think this example is, is powerful because it was really 30 years into my career when I had gotten very comfortable, if you if you know Whitney Johnson and her, her S-curve, mm. you know, I was in the sweet spot of my career at publicly traded companies running business units. And um, I had multiple peers who were also running business units. And when uh, CEB, as you, you talk, called out in my bio, was bought by Gartner, I knew it wasn't going to go well for my business unit. It wasn't what they did. So I kind of volunteered to, for a severance package and stepped away. And, and I wanted to make sure I took some time to figure out what I wanted to do next. Did I want to go back to a publicly traded company? Did I want to start my own consultancy again? So I was in the midst of that exploration when I really made the decision, and this is aligned to the hurdle called clarity. It's actually one of the top three hurdles women face. Like, what do I want with my career? And I was sorting through that and just kind of narrowed in on, I want to be an executive. I want to be a CEO I want, or at the C-suite table. I want to drive the mission, the vision, the strategy of an organization. I want to manage the team through to aspirational goals. I got clear on all that. And then a headhunter called and said, would you be interested in the CEO job at Linkage? I mean, first, I hadn't heard of Linkage. And uh, even though Linkage is a 35-year-old, very well-established company, I did a ton of research and went, oh, my God, Like, what an incredible company. I can't believe I don't know them. But then what happened? My inner critic went crazy. You're not ready to be a CEO. You need to be a number two first. You need to be properly groomed. And uh, what do you know about the income statement, the balance sheet, the cash flow statements and how they intersect. I mean, you've not even run the OPEX of an organization. You've never run past the gross margin line. What do you know about EBITDA and net income? And then my favorite was, what kind of mother are you? <laughs> you've got kids in elementary school, middle school and high school. They need you right now. If you take this CEO job commuting to Boston from DC every week or two, what kind of mother does that? How so can you do critic, that to them, Jennifer, right? That inner critic is, yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, that's what really happens. And so I was kind of paralyzed, right? I almost very close to not throwing my hat into the ring at all. Well, I'm going to pause there and you can tell me what you think so far. Is this uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about? Was this sort of that 2017 era, right? Where you're looking at, Oh my gosh, there's a there's an acquisition, there's a C-suite shuffle, and you're having your own sort of come to Jennifer meet, meeting with yourself saying, who am I and what I want to do out of this? So I'm even taking a step back to say, so that inner critic of what's going on within the acquisition and the leadership chairs there, you had to go through that field first before you even got to headhunter, linkage, imposter syndrome, inner critic level there. Is that fair? That is fair. I mean, there was a lot of turbulence uh, happening, as there always is in an acquisition. I know it well. I've been through many. <laughs> and, um, and in fact, I left. That, that wasn't the hardest part. I actually left CEB with the most amazing job at another company that I don't name in the book. But it was very reactive. Uh -huh. I jumped to another publicly traded company because I had an amazing sponsor who said, 
come Jennifer. It's a new business unit. It's a new role. You'll be managing over a hundred million dollars of leadership. I lot. I literally damn thought I would be there for the rest of my life, oh. but that didn't happen. Yeah. I jumped. He, for various reasons, left the firm within a few weeks after my arrival. And it was really a downward. I, I write about it extensively in the book. It was really a downward spiral of what am I doing with my life, with my career? And so my in, at that job, and it only lasted a short period, six months, the inner critic spiked so significantly that it was really impacting my self-esteem and confidence. And I had to extricate myself and stop. And this gets to the solution. So let me, yeah. let me, uh, let me Good. pause again. Okay. <laughs> so here's what we tell women. Now I'm, I'm giving you pretty big examples of the inner critic. Like oftentimes they are like little examples throughout the day. Mm -hmm. But in this example, um, when the inner critic rears its head, and for most of us, that's many times a day. I'll use the CEO, I'm not ready to be the CEO example. It just so happened that two members of my close network, they, ha they happened to be men and they were my allies. They were my peers at the publicly traded company. They sat me down at lunch and had a bit of an intervention. And they said, Jennifer, if we think we're ready to be private equity backed CEOs at portfolio companies, why don't you think you're ready? Uh, if not now, when? Yeah. As I was saying, oh, I need a I need a number two job first, and that'll do five years. And they're going, look, you're not TikTok, right? You're not getting any younger. <laughs> so they didn't say that. I'm just kidding. But but that helped me. And this is the very quickly the four step model with what that we teach at Linkage is one: you have to be aware. I don't think I was fully aware that my inner critic was so loud it was clouding mm. my vision. They helped me become aware. Number two is pause. Okay, I see what's happening. I can see it more objectively. Um, the third is to have compassion. You know, have compassion for yourself if it's pointed at you or for others if it's pointed externally. For me, I had to have compassion for myself because I did know the kind of mother that I wanted to be. And I did know the kind of leader that I wanted to be. And I was scared. Hmm. So once you can kind of have compassion the next thing to do is is to become curious. Mm -hmm. So I had to ask myself, you know, I've had big jobs in other in publicly traded companies. This is another big job, but why why would this be that different? I was the type of mom, more or less, <laughs> that I wanted to be in those other jobs. Right. Why not this one? Wow. Okay. So it actually does dovetail into something as a CEO and uh, what women face now. Lots of studies, and you've cited them, where uh, women are doing more, particularly moms, uh, around the house from all kinds of chores and uh, tidings and whatever. Right? There's just um, there's a there's an extra busyness factor that the data and the research suggests that women who are moms do more of because of whatever reason. That's just the we'll start there. So my question for you, I guess, is about the busyness factor. And this sort of epidemic that I'm seeing, it just continues to grow our busyness and more so women. And so this kind of challenge for professionals and particularly women professionals and leaders across the globe, as you point out in the research and your in the book, proving your value becomes one of the single greatest hurdles uh, for women and challenges to women. And so when I'm thinking it a little bit more expanding upon mothers who like you are leaders how does proving your value become, I guess, um, related to the busyness factor? And when they're when we're busy, what what can we do when it's exacerbated by all of this extra doing? It seems to me that 
there's a, a huge hurdle that women who are mothers have to overcome that we don't talk enough about, particularly women like yourself who are leaders and CEOs. So help me understand that part of your book and also just to help others that are listening in or watching like what they should be doing. Oh, this is a big one to unpack. So first of all, let's just talk about the reality. Um, and, it, and it is exacerbated with mothers, but you could also extend that to, to, to women who bear the primary responsibility for home care yeah. and elder care Elderly, in yeah, addition right. to child care. So that said, uh, it, it actually spiked during the pandemic where what we call the second shift. So the first shift is our day job. So for me, it's my CEO job. Mm-hmm. The second shift is the uh, the now I'm not working, I'm doing childcare, home care, elder care. That's called the second shift. During the pandemic, it spiked at three hours more per day than men, right? So let's just think about three waking hours. And then the third shift, which has been well-documented coming out of the, or in the pandemic and coming out is what we call the office care. So this goes beyond like what we used to do is like taking the notes and tidying the rooms and to actually caring for the staff mental health. Mm-hmm. or or leading the DEI initiatives or helping burnt out staff prioritize, women take an extra share of that as well. So that's what's happening externally. Now, what can we do about it? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned proving your value. It is the single largest hurdle women face on their rise to leadership. And we also call proving your value over rowing the boat. So that's that link to the yeah. busyness that you were just talking about. Yeah. And it's And it kind of looks like this. Now, as, as women start out and we are told, you know, say yes to everything, make sure that any opportunity that comes your way, volunteer or otherwise, you say yes. Lean say, in, right? Yeah. Lean in. I hate when people say that, especially to I me. know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and here's why. Because women already have a tendency yes. to put their head down and take on more and more and more, totally. hoping that people will notice. It could be at home or it could be in the community or yeah. it can be at work. And so there's a couple things going on here. One is this overrowing the boat, taking things on, saying yes to too many things. The other is the perfectionism trap. So not only do we want to take everything on, but we many of us have this misguided belief that if it's going to be done right, we have to do it ourselves. And, you know, think about whether you're a man or a woman, you're, you're, you're either the recipient or, the, uh, or, or the, the, the one leading the way, how critical we can be. And I'll put myself in this situation, even with my husband, of you didn't do that right, right? <laughs> like it could be the kitchen or the, you know, buying of the kids clothes or whatever. Like, right. and that kind of translates to a lot of parts in our life. Like we just, we, we, we operate there's, a, well. there's, an, there's an expected quality level, right? Yeah. So here's the the answer to this. And women have to understand that putting your head down and working harder and harder, hoping people notice, rarely ever works. Most of the time, they actually don't notice, right? And you just end up in complete burnout. Mm -hmm. And so we have to get better at delegating and inspiring others to take on some of the work, offering stretch assignments. I talk about a story in the book where I had been leading individually leading the strategic planning process for linkage for five years. It got to the sixth year. I'm tr- we're selling and integrating the company and we're writing the book. I just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And I offered the opportunity and actually she raised her hand. My uh, chief product officer said, Hey, Jennifer, I'd like to lead the strategic planning process. And I went, 
thank God, take it. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> um, let me tell you something, Dan. She did it differently than I would do. Mm. And, and in some cases, it was actually better. So that's an example of inspiring and delegating without hanging on and then really releasing the perfectionism. If it's 90% good enough for you, it's pretty much 100% for everybody else, right? Because in our mind, we have to be so perfect. Well, you're doing a really good job of segueing the, the aspects of the book I wanted to, to ask you about. And so now it turns to recognize confidence. And so for me, you've also pointed out it's a hurdle. And so maybe this is your chief product officer. She had to kind of go through the, well, I've, I've, I've got to recognize my own confidence, put my hand up to say, I want to do and lead the strategic planning process. So let me and help me understand why it's a hurdle and how do women have to overcome or how can they overcome the recognized confidence factor? I'm so glad you raised this one because this is one of the few that we've actually really shifted our perspective on based on the pandemic and beyond. So mm -hmm. not only looking at our data and our experience, but what, what else is happening out there. So we used to talk about recognized confidence, and I'll, I'll define it in a moment, as just helping women overcome their confidence gap, overcome what's called the imposter syndrome. And that's pretty well documented of like, oh God, I'm going to wake up and realize that the whole world has figured out that I have no idea what I'm doing. And while all of us have a little bit of that, it's definitely a, a little, you know, the research has proven it's a little bit higher for women. We've stopped doing that altogether. You can't beat confidence into someone or imposter syndrome out of someone. What you can do is help ensure that the competence of women is recognized, that, that we are shining a light on their excellence and confidence will result. And we do that in one of two ways now. One, we help women really understand and build the courage to self-promote, shine a light on their own excellence appropriately. So I've got a, you know, I've got someone on my team who's just brilliant at this. And every week or so, she will find a way. It might be a text or an email, or a, she'll, you know, she'll say, "I just just got off the stage uh, in in Ohio, Jennifer, and you won't believe it. There were a couple hundred people there." And, and the organizer said, I was the very best speaker. And this is the kind of feedback I got. Now, why is that brilliant? One, I'm not there, so I never would have known. <laughs> but two, she had told me that her aspiration was to get on more stages and to be a better public speaker. So her shining a light on herself is so perfect because what happens the next time a keynote speech is available? Hey, yes, we can calling, do it. calling yeah. you in, yeah, right? Yeah. So that's number one. Women sometimes have a hard time doing that. And so number two, we, we encourage them to circle themselves with allies, supporters, advisory boards who will help shine a light on them for them. Mm. And so we all need to look for opportunities, especially for women in underrepresented populations to demonstrate and highlight their excellence in public in front of others because they're not getting that same amount, that quality, that quantity of kind of light shining on them. Gosh, that is so poignant. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I wanted to, so two, two more kind of threads and then uh, you've been generous and we'll, we'll let you go here. So I'm curious, is there 
something you recommend from a tactics perspective or just a, an observable understanding that senior leaders and organizations today should be thinking about? And I don't want to simplify or glorify it as your top three or five. I'm just wondering from your research, your linkage work, just everything that you do, are there there's certain things to help women rise that you would recommend listeners and senior leaders and particularly men uh, think about right now? What you're hitting at now is is moving beyond you know this this awareness and support that that is, that all of us as senior leaders can offer women to the broader picture, the organizational picture. Mm. And what I love about that is because as we've already predetermined, most of the organization's senior executives are men. And so there are a couple things that I would recommend. And the first is that 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 getting really clear about what are your goals related to your leadership at all levels. Now, get hold of your data and get a sense, not only the diversity data, but also what we call the leading indicator data, which are things like the engagement, the commitment, the intention to stay, the net promoter score, um, the values fit of women and other populations that you're concerned about. One of our clients said, look, We've got a program for women at a certain level. We work with them. But what we're learning at the, at the next level up across gender, we're really struggling with our Black and Latin population. Uh, so what I loved about it is they were looking at their data and they were really clear. Not only that we are missing these populations or we're having trouble attracting and keeping them, but but we know why it's important because X, they reflect our, you know, these populations reflect our customer base. And we need to make sure that our leadership reflects our customer base. Mm -hmm. We know we're not getting enough diversity of opinion and perspective and experience. So get a hold of your data and understand why it's important. Number two, we have to work on ourselves, right? We have to work on ourselves as executives and we have to work on our organizational culture and talent systems. So we don't do all of this work at Linkage, but we do measure the perception of whether it's our inclusion um, survey, which measures the perception of inclusion across, or whether yeah. it's our uh, organizational, our women's, our advancing women organizational assessment. So we can surface the data and the perception and say, here's a strategy. And here's a strategy that is not going to be a one month and done. It's going to take one year and then two years and then three years. And I just got off the, the keynote yesterday with Parexcel, one of our top clients. They've been tracking their data, Dan, for 10 years with us. Wow. And I tell you, they have outperformed our benchmark and our normative database every single year. Mm. So they know why it's important. They're tracking their data. They're committed to the long term. And now they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women who are retained at the organization, who are operating as role models for the next generations. How encouraging is that? There is good in this world, and it starts with Jennifer McCollum. Okay, I can't let you go, by the way, unless I bring up uh, a mutual uh, pal slash star slash leadership legend. And when I uh, when I came across Alan Mulally in your book, and for those that are unaware of who Alan is, former CEO of Ford Motor Company as well as Boeing Company, um, tell us a bit about what Alan Mulally means to you and just a little bit about perhaps like how he found his way into the networking uh, component of, uh, of the book. It's such a perfect story to end on because Alan Mulally is featured in the networking. It's the final hurdle that we cover. And just by the way, women are fantastic at curating a network. 
they're less fantastic at activating the network. And to activate the network, you have to overcome the, the, the hurdle that precedes networking, which is making the ask. It is actually the third highest hurdle that women face after proving your value, which we already discussed, and yeah. clarity, which I discussed a little bit. So the Allen story is so wonderful because uh, I think you were at the same event in 2020 where I was watching Allen um, demonstrate to us how he led at Ford and Boeing, the leadership practices and principles that he used. So he calls it his working together um, management and leadership system. And all I could think about, Dan, was I need Alan to help <laughs> me. I need him in my network. I need him closer to me. I know that the look, I was 18 months in. I was just hitting the sweet spot, but there were so many things I wanted to do at Linkage. And this, by the way, this was two months before the pandemic shut yeah, down the entire yeah, world. Exactly. <laughs> right. So I wasn't quite sure. We were still in denial of that phase. So but I, I knew I wanted to bring him into my network, but I wasn't sure how. So I asked our good friend, Marshall Goldsmith, at the meeting. He was hosting the meeting. And I said, do you think Alan would be willing to talk to me about his business plan review? I think I could use that inside of Linkage. And secretly between you and me, I was hoping that that Marshall would just kind of pave the way and, and just hook me up, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Marshall said, I don't know. Why don't you ask him? <laughs> <laughs> So that's how I met Alan. It was actually the next day. I uh, well, well, let me let me pause for a moment. Do you uh, do you have time for the rest of the story? Yeah, we got to hear this. Come on. <laughs> okay, I always like to pause. So the next day, you know, I had been really contemplating this. Look, Alan is a multi-billionaire. This is very you know easy access information. You just have to Google him. At the time, he was on the board at Google, the Mayo Clinic, and I'm thinking of inner critic again spiking. Yeah. Why would he want to talk to me? Right? Like Lincoln. Who am I? Yeah. Little rounding error in his bonus pool, right? So, um. I uh, was working out. It was about five in the morning. I was on East Coast time. We were in San Diego. I was waking up the crack of dawn. And after my workout, I was like completely sweaty, no makeup. And I kind of stumbled into the Hyatt Regency Continental Breakfast Club floor, right? Just yeah. to get a banana. So I, I pile in there. I, I grab a banana. I've got like my phone in one hand, my banana and iPad in the other. I'm super sweaty. I look up and Alan is standing at the toaster by himself. Of course. <laughs> and again, inner yeah. critic spikes. You are not ready to talk to Alan Mulally. You don't look good enough. You haven't thought about what you're going to say. You need to send him an email first. <laughs> and, and then again, because I've been through this many times, it was become aware, pause, give myself a little break. I'm not getting this chance again. Yeah. And get curious. I mean, the worst thing you could say is, you know, like, you know yeah. Off, right? yeah. and so um, I went through that cycle so quickly in less than 30 seconds that I, I walked right up to him and I introduced myself and said, look, I, he goes, you were sitting in the front row yesterday. He recognized me. He was so generous. And I said, like, would you be willing to talk to me? And he said, send me an email. And that was the beginning of a beautiful, now nearly four-year relationship with Alan. Such a gorgeous story. And you you also go into the book and share some of the email exchanges between the two of you. It's just 
it's it's ridiculously awesome. And uh, so uh, I went in with that because Alan does provide you with some wisdom and that wisdom is then shared within the book on the networking component, which actually male or female, you're, you're going to love this part. Okay, Jennifer, this has been so great. Where can we find out more about you, the book, Linkage? Please get us in the right direction. The book is super easy. Go Amazon, Barnes & Noble audiobook. So it's In Her Own Voice, A Woman's Rise to CEO by Jennifer McCullum. If you want to learn a little bit more about what we do beyond the book, you can go to sherm.org, S-H-R-M.org, backslash In Her Own Voice. And my favorite platform to communicate with all of you is LinkedIn, Jennifer Sheer McCullum. Connect with me and then send me a message and that will start a conversation. Jennifer McCollum, Jennifer, my friend, thank you for this. The book again, In Her Own Voice, A Women's Rise to CEO. Please consider this as a gift. Uh, it is a gift. You have done such a magnificent job. I wish this book was available 20 years ago so that we'd be 20 years ahead where we are today. So thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Dan. All right, folks, another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract in the house today, the CEO of Linkage, Jennifer McCollum the author of In Her Own Voice. Until another time. Thanks all.